everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there's Steve. Hey, how you doing? And today we are looking at Michael Shea's Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. That's me. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking lazy everything. Uh, this is a, a, a short book. It's about 100 pages. Plus a lot of artwork. Uh <laughs> That, that focuses mainly on a series of polls that the publisher uh, put up on like Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, asking GMs, uh, it was mainly a focus on the world's most popular fantasy role-playing game. Uh, RuneQuest? <laughs> what? Never heard of it. Um Asking them about their their habits and and how they prepare for games, and you know preparation and having to prepare in a hurry is is something that is well known here at Microphones of Madness. It certainly is, as we all have lives, <laughs> right? As we all have lives, and uh, unlike the the common complaint around physical game tables. Uh, we actually pretty much have a session every week. Right. Uh, at sometimes uh, in the future, or in the past, rather. Time is weird for me. Uh, there will be moments where Steve and I were prepping two games apiece as they would just come up on the schedule. Right. And generally, yeah, you only have like a week to prepare. Sometimes so even less because sometimes yeah. even less because life gets in the way. Right, and remember the the, the title is the Lazy Dungeon Master. That's right, the Lazy Dungeon Master. Um, before we begin, I, I really would like to you know indulge my probably one and only real criticism of the book. Is that you would think a book titled Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master would be funnier. But it's it's not funny. No, it's deadly serious. Mm-hmm. Um we'll say they got a lot of mileage out of this cover art. Yes. <laughs> a lot of mileage out of the cover art. They use examples of a, a published campaign. Uh, there's a lot, but the the main thing we want to look at is is the advice that Shay gives in the book, and right. kind of like provide our own interpretation through our experiences doing actual play for Microphones of Madness. Right. So another glimpse for you fans out there who are looking at how the sausage is made. Right behind the ragged curtain. Behind the ragged curtain. Um. First off, you know, you got chapter one where he reiterates the mantra from the first book. Right, uh, this is actually an updated version of a previously released book to kind of, um, uh, I guess, coincide with the modern Dungeon Master. Mm -hmm. uh, people who, who use the internet. Um, there are quite a few online resources these days. Um, a lot more than there were when he first wrote this. 
Yeah, there's yeah. there's any number of character generators. There's campaign planning software. Right, and and I want to say that uh, this that fifth edition of the nameless fantasy role playing game came out after the first one was published. So this also updates it to kind of coincide with the newer edition of RuneQuest. I mean, <laughs> the most popular fantasy role-playing game. game. <laughs> so the first piece of advice that Shay offers is prepare what benefits your game. Right. Um, funny thing. <laughs> it's what I do. Right. Um, I learned having, um, well, really from running massive Nyarlathotep, to be honest, mm -hmm. that everything's going to go wrong. And right. if you have, have the, the more information that you have stockpiled in there, the bigger chance of you as a, as a keeper or a GM or whatever of, um, like, screwing the pooch mm -hmm. so to speak um because you want to have certain things happen and they're not going to happen or if they do happen they're not going to happen when you want them to happen right so right so less is more definitely or uh, or how you want them to happen right so having an idea instead of a book of of idea um, benefits you greatly because you are able, more able to roll with the punches if you have to roll with those punches, right. as opposed to, um, you know, having all this inform great stuff that you've come up with. We're not saying it's not great stuff that mm -hmm. you want to put in there, but you don't have the opportunity because the players just aren't letting you. Right, right. Sometimes they'll want to just sit in the cafe eating sandwiches. Uh, the entire session yeah. and other times, you know, they want to torture and murder the person that has the key piece of information. Right. Or, or sometimes um, they're following up on leads and they go to the rice patties that you have no idea how rice patties are organized or worked or anything. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, and you have not prepped for rice patties, but Mm -hmm. they're they're in the rice patties so you got to come up with something so right so i mean the main thing and the main thing that that is the key piece of advice to every game master no matter what system you run whether it is call of cthulhu uh dungeons and dragons icons star wars it doesn't matter always be prepared to improvise right um, and we have, we'll have some tips as we go through the, the, the checklist. Right. Um, Unfortunately, this doesn't really tell you how to improvise. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. something you pick up yeah. as, you, as you, you know, play games, both as a, in the role of GM and as player. Right. Um, it's just something that, or if you like take acting classes or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a learned skill. Um, some people are definitely better at it than others. Um, right. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just something that you, you, you just learn by doing. Mm -hmm. Now for me, the mantra of prepare what benefits your game is 
it it, it kind of it's kind of you know keep it simple uh we hear a lot about uh you know gms who sit down and they prepare this this campaign out, out of their own head and there's you know a thousand years of history uh these are the regions these are the languages spoken and all this other stuff but you know when it comes down to to playing you know a lot of that never really comes to pass yeah 95 percent of all that great stuff is just going to remain in your head mm-hmm. which is which is fine because you know it's something that you can use later on right but even if you read like the dungeon master's guide mm-hmm. um i've read the the fifth edition one and way back a long time ago i read the first edition one mm-hmm um, and they all say start small, right? And and work your way out. And that's really the the advice that um, Shay is giving. Mm-hmm. The that, the spiral method of campaign construction. Yeah, pay attention to what's going on, not only for what you have planned, but for what your players are doing. Mm-hmm. That way, you can uh, work to compensate for what they're doing. And when they deviate from what you want you can get them back there organically by you know just following their lead oh yeah and sometimes and and have it built out from there and and sometimes you know the players will go completely off the rails and they'll have an an idea that leads to a more interesting game than what's written down that's true uh we talk about it all the time the first time uh, we ran icrpg you guys went completely off the rails with a solution to the dungeon that I put the just put the book aside and let you guys run it. Yeah, we played Call of Cthulhu for a <laughs> minute. <laughs> so, yeah, and it came it came to a, a very nice uh, ending that made sense within the terms of the adventure. And it also made sense in terms of both the players and the characters that were being played. Which is actually interesting because that, if, if I remember correctly, was from the, the book, right? Yep, that was right out of the book. Right. So I know when I run um, a published adventure, I tend to be a, a lot less, and I shouldn't, um, a lot less uh, liberal in, in uh, what I want to happen or what I, I try and let happen, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Because there are, 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 you know, plot points and, and clues and everything that are written down. Right. And, and it just, to, to me, and it, it's my own thing, it's harder to improvise um, in a pre-programmed adventure than it is for something that's out of your head. And it shouldn't be, but it is because you kind of want to stay true to the, um, to just to the tone and intent of that adventure. Right. And you also want to be uh, respectful to the amount of effort it took to write that adventure. Right. Because it does take a lot of work to write even a, uh, an adventure that takes a single night to play. Yeah, it does. Uh, so let's, uh, let's jump right into the checklist since, since we kind of brought it up a little bit. Uh, right. Number one, Tip for the lazy dungeon master: Review the characters. Yes. 
Uh, I have a problem with this because it takes me at least five sessions to remember all the characters' names. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like any of us are professional um, actors or anything. So the characters' personalities and, and you know, traits and everything kind of tweak themselves yep. <laughs> over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And, and not in a, that's his story arc kind of way. Right. But just in a, we're, you know, we're imperfect people. And, right. you know, we, we, we play this game, uh, you know, once or twice a week, usually once with those particular characters. And sometimes we're juggling two or even three different characters mm-hmm. um, at once. So it gets a little confusing. So um, the more that you, I can do as a keeper to know not my players because it's you know more or less the same guys and girls every every time but who they're playing and how mm-hmm. they're playing them just a little you don't have to like you know have them on the bench or anything and and uh you know asking them how they feel about their fathers but, right you know just just enough to know that okay so um nick's playing a dual swordsman right right uh Rod- ronnie's a uh, a warrior monk that kind of Right. And Wes is Wes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that some things are constant. Right. And, and that helps a lot um, <clears throat> when you're playing as regularly as we do uh, with that kind of frequency is for players to have a comfortable type of character. And, you know, particularly in moments where you have to improvise about what that character is going to do. Right. And it's a little weirder to do things um, like in a public, like a con or, you know, mm-hmm. um, or adventure league, I guess, kind of situation. Right. Where you're playing with a group that you've possibly never played before, never met the people. Right. The weird thing is, um, so I recently ran a uh, Call of Cthulhu for free RPG day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had all these... I. All of the pre-gens were, um, most of them were my characters that I played here. Right. So uh, it was very strange having um, other people inhabit the skins of my characters. Because I knew what I would do with them. Right. But they, like, went on completely different, you know, tangents. I mm-hmm. didn't recognize Richie, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's weird how like you know well it's, it makes sense, but it, just in terms of reviewing the characters, these are characters that I thought I knew, mm-hmm. <laughs> but apparently you didn't because no because yeah. other people play them differently. So it's, it, it's it's not it's really it's not only review your characters but review your players too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you can, if you can. Um, there is a little bit uh, to be gained from knowing what your players, what your PCs are capable of. Uh, right. So if you're re- doing a uh, pre-written adventure and it calls for, uh, there's a locked door. The locked door is possibly the scariest and most difficult encounter a party can face if there's no one that can open a door. Well, it was the first real encounter that we had as a group. Mm-hmm. Was a locked door. That was a locked door, where 
no one could get that check to pick that lock. Yeah. And and no one could muster the strength roll to break the door down. That was it was the the fir- very first thing that we we encountered as a group was a locked door. Yep. Um yeah. Meanwhile, my character's getting his ass stomped on the fire escape. <laughs> right, but but that's the other thing is if you know obviously like the first time you play, you don't really know the characters or right. the players. But if you know characters and you know the, the people playing them, you can tailor encounters um, mm-hmm. to them. You are very, very good at that, especially with um, taking people's backstories and incorporating it into the game. No, it is actually you. one of your strengths as a GM. I, I love doing that because, you know, especially when it's a piece of backstory that comes out in just like random ass character narration. My wife tells me this all the time is that, you know, when we were about to play Star Wars, she advised everyone to pay attention to everyone because that little random ass NPC you guys pissed off back in episode two might come back to haunt you in episode 13. But, you know, I, I like doing that. I like not only, you know, um, using PC backstories as narrative points, like making villains, you know, related to characters. Uh, but I also like, you know, the early sessions of the campaign to be forming a, the, the, the shared backstory of these characters. So that right. you can come along later and go, you know, this, you know, you see a guy and he pulls a gun on you and you're like, oh, my God, it's that hot dog vendor from the first session. <laughs> my cabbages. Right. That that type of thing. So, yeah, I, I like I like paying attention uh, to the characters, even though it takes me forever to memorize your names. Um, in fact, most often. Uh, particularly for icons, uh, I had a cheat sheet with each of the characters' names, uh, the real name, the superhero identity, and a list of your qualities. So I had one sheet of paper that had all that on there. And as I was writing, I was, you know, this little piece of backstory here, this little piece there. And and sometimes with with a game like Icons, I can use your qualities against you in a narrative sense. You know, saying that this is the way you rolled your character, and so I put you in this situation. This is going to be how you react to it, and we're going to have a really fun encounter. Well, Icons, that's like the whole point of the game. Yeah. That's how that game rolls. Mm-hmm. You asked for this. <laughs> when, when you decided to make, you know, uh, justice at all costs or whatever, your, you know, equality, you know, that's got a, a flip side as well. Mm-hmm. All costs. Right. <laughs> um, and that ties us into the second point in the checklist. Create a strong start. Yes. I I have I try and do this 
you know, before I've even read this book, that's one of the things that I've tried to do because you want to hook, you want to get people hooked into the story. Mm -hmm. You want them to, you want them to want to play. And the easiest way to do that is to like do something big at the beginning. Um, And it doesn't have to be like insane big, but it has to be something that catches your attention. Right. Yeah, it, it's something that catches your attention. Something that gets the characters invested in the world that you're in. Right. Um, um, you know, Massive Nair Lethetep started it all with all of the characters uh, receiving the missive from Jackson Elias. Right. I mean, that starts out with a murder that is mm-hmm. supposed to happen in front of your eyes. Right. And... Uh, Icon started off with a robbery during a memorial service for Superman. Right, more or less, yeah. yeah. Um, one of my favorite ones was in the second part of, of Mass of Naralathotep. Mm-hmm. Um, when we came back after the break, um, it, I, it was uh, in Media Res, which is a great way to do things as well, I think, mm-hmm. um, where you guys were um, on a boat being, being attacked. Yep. You know, so you like all wake up and you have to fight. Right. <laughs> right. And that's a, that's a good way to to uh to do uh campaigns and whatnot after after a while. It's harder to do an in media res opening if it's a unfamiliar system to your players. Right. Um if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons for the umpteenth time you can start in the middle of a tavern brawl or, hell, in, in the first room of the dungeon. Right. I just call it the uh, greatest fantasy role-playing game. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We're supposed to be... Uh, the, the, the book really is supposed to be um, agnostic, system agnostic. Right. Concentrating but... on fantasy role-playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's usually the the here in America, that's like it's number it's number one. Yeah, well, when people think of role playing games, they mm-hmm. think of, of fantasy role playing, and right. they do think of the D and D. But then there's I find there's a lot of um, I, I I don't want to say backlash, but maybe um, um, hipster backlash. Against D and D, you know what I'm saying? It's too popular. I don't want. Yeah, to I was playing it before it was cool, right? And, you know, and then there's now I'm gonna play some other shit like RuneQuest because you know it's not D and D, right? Or or there's this, uh, you know, actual play is becoming a a, a big phenomenon, uh, and and people are like, oh, you know, they're streaming it or recording it or something like that and podcasting it how how dare they you know but there is an audience for it and and there seems to be an audience for uh watching people create these original adventures because there's a lot of high quality storytelling that goes into doing this type of stuff no it's true and and i think people like to watch people flounder around <laughs> oh yeah yeah because you know 
everybody, you know, if, if the popularity of television shows has taught us anything, it's that people really love random ass non sequitur pop culture references. Right. And you get lots of those. That's true. I, yeah. I don't know why. Um, but to tie it in with that, a strong start also will pull people in who are listening slash watching. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and and the strong start doesn't necessarily have to be in media res. It can start off with a vivid description. And yeah. you can get purple with this part of it and and still be a lazy DM. Because, you know, that's all you need. You know, the the city and I I, I do this a lot in, in as chapters change and whatnot is always start with kind of a description you know this the city is dark it's midwinter a light snow is falling and that sort of thing and and it does it kind of sets you into the mood and and sets the you know it's kind of like uh in in a lot of suggestions for playing around an actual table using mood lighting using appropriate music and things like this to to set the mood when you're playing theater of the mind with uh, a group that is geographically spread out, a lot of times creating that table space involves, you know, luring people into the world and, and describing things. Right. Say this is, this is where, you know, Monday night heroes ends and this is where the game begins. Right. No, it, it is. It's important. Um, it, well, it's important in anything, any storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you're reading a book and it doesn't like pull you in after the first, you know, 10, 20 pages, chances are you're putting that book down. Right. If you're, you know, watching the television show and you're not drawn in in the first 15 minutes or, well, it's television, the first five minutes. Why, why are you watching that show? Yeah, if you haven't been hooked by the cold opening, you're not really going to watch that show. Right. And, so, you know, speaking speaking as somebody who's read a lot of writing advice, you know, a lot of times they'll tell you if your reader is booked in the first page, they're going to put that book down. Yeah, so, yeah, you, you, strong start is just good advice no matter yeah. what. Yeah, whether you're a really complex DM or you're a lazy DM, you know, always start strong. All right, number three. Here comes here comes the tricky one. Actually, I like this one a lot, right. and and I un, I unconsciously yes, I subconsciously do this um, because mm-hmm. there's just, it just gets too much. This is where we're 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 starting to talk about how um, you can over-prepare and, and really do yourself a disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, just outlining potential scenes. Yep, yep. So, um, go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, all, is, all it's saying is you have set this up. You have your strong start, and you have, like, three little hooks in that strong start, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to have each of those th- potential encounters mapped out. Mm-hmm. You just have to kind of know what you want to happen in that. Right. And that's all that's saying. It's not it, – it, now, that this is where your skills of improvisation come in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but if you have like just vague outlines of what needs to happen in every scene, you know, what clues need to be dropped, blah, blah, blah. And the players throw you a curveball. Mm-hmm. You can adapt uh, your potential scenes to meet with what they what they've done, right? Um, which, and, which leads into the next one as well. But it, the, the more specific you get, the, the more that um, you know NPC X. Um, is the one that you need to talk to right in order to get to the next you know level of of the investigation or whatever mm-hmm. um, right when those characters decide to go talk to npc y mm-hmm. what are you gonna do right and that happens a lot that yeah. happens that that's a given right <laughs> that's is that so so yeah you definitely don't want to meticulously prepare a scene um you know there's usually it's like uh you know i know you say you do this uh, uh subconsciously i sit down uh when i prepare a, a a session for an evening is you know i try to finagle it where you know that person is going to be there you talk to them and then you go do something else so it's more like a quest giver kind of scenario right um and you know and to tie it into part four you know you don't want to get too detailed with it because you know characters are not going to always ask the right questions because not everybody is a trained interrogator well a they're not going to ask the right questions because because they're not a trained interrogator and B um, sometimes they don't know what questions to ask. Right. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes as a GM, that's on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's frustrating and it sucks, but that's on you because if you have, if they skip over your precious NPC that has the information that, that you need them to have, you have to be ready to have a different NPC or a missive or, you know, something in a book that gives that information to them. Or that random spot hidden check that gives you an, a seemingly incongruous piece of evidence right. that tells you the clue. I mean, if that's on you, if, if you know, um, perfect example when you guys were recently playing dark tides mm-hmm. and you you just there was a point where you just didn't know who the movers and the shakers were right, right. um that was my fault because uh, you weren't asking the right questions doesn't mean that you don't get to know that information that was just my fault just right. point blank you guys weren't asking that but you need that information well i i did ask that and i got mm. a i got an appropriate response from that right. character from that npc right because, but then it, it got dropped right so i mean i i guess we could say it was everyone was at fault but really as a gm it's my job to uh disseminate that information to, right to to everyone you know at an appropriate time 
And, you know, fortunately for us, Call of Cthulhu has the idea rule. Right. Which is like which is the a, fail safe. <laughs> right. Which is a way you can you can kind of shoehorn it in there a little bit. And right. it, it seem organic. Yeah, it's not very organic. It's kind of like, uh, like you said, it's shoehorning it in. But it's better than not having that information at all. Because, you know, you can just end up, especially in an investigation type game, Mm-hmm. You just end up spinning your wheels. Right. Right. Which brings us to number four, defining your secrets and clues. Right. Um, and yeah, when you're outlining your scenes or you're planning for a session, uh, this is something that my notebooks are always filled with uh, as I'm prepping or prepping campaigns or prepping adventures or even just a single session. What do you guys as players or as characters need to know to progress to the next session. Right. Um, And there's always something like that. There's always a piece of information, an NPC to talk to the right name, the right address or the right event. But they, they have to be, um, I guess, placed loosely Mm -hmm. so that if you don't go to that NPC or that place, you can still get that information. Right. Um, you know, we've actually talked about this before uh, when we were talking about old school Call of Cthulhu scenarios where you mm-hmm. can miss a vital piece of, of um, you know, information. Right. On a die roll. Mm-hmm. And that makes the scenario impossible to, to, to win, quote unquote. Right. So it, it's, you know, fucking gumshoe was created because of that mm-hmm. <laughs> but with call of cthulhu you really it it's a question of okay so they skip that over um talking to you know guy can't they find that like in in a library when they go to the library mm-hmm. i mean how hard is it to drop that information as, you know, a marginalia in a book they're looking at or whatever. Right, right. Or when somebody botches their persuade role and that NPC clams up as just the, that's the mechanical result of the action. Right. So you can, uh, you know, there's, there's ways around it. Um, You just have to be willing to deviate from, you know, either what was written down for you or, uh, you know, what you, how you thought it was going to go down. Mm-hmm. You know, you can always overhear a conversation. Yep. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you can always have Jesus Christ. H.P. Lovecraft used it. A drunk guy babbling about crap. Mm-hmm. You know, a frightened minion. Yeah, you know, remember uh, Fred the Cultist? Right. That's why Fred the Cultist was there. <laughs> Fred you know, the Cultist. Fred the Cultist is one of my favorite NPCs I've ever created. <laughs> he might have been Bob, though. Maybe he wasn't all that much of a favorite, but he was great. Right, right. Uh, Operator 247. Yep. For those of you who don't know, Fred or Bob, whatever I named him, was a cultist 
in uh, the underground city in Australia who these guys ran into who had to get them some information that they weren't getting. Just right. Patient of uh, the, the secret control room to the evil head cultists. Right. And it's also, it's also one of our favorite jokes to put in the game uh, into any game is that not all the cultists are either, you know, the evil big bad stormtroopers or, you know, some wizard or something like that. You know, somebody's got to clean the toilets. Somebody's got to fucking wire the lights in this place. Someone has to light the torches. So, you know, these are the best NPCs to just get random acid. Right. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes, you know, there's just a guy who goes to church on Sunday because mm-hmm. his parents took him. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, man. Uh, it's over there. <laughs> yeah. Don't kill me. Yeah. Don't shoot me in the face. <laughs> don't shoot me. I'll tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> right. And that's and that's a good way to to cover missed clues or or disseminate information in a in a logical fashion. I mean, yeah, he's not gonna know the combination to the big boss is safe, right. but he's gonna know that hey, you know, there's he has a dog or you know, there's always a couple of guys inside the room. Right. Low level thugs are great. Yeah. So yeah, figure out ways to to spread your clues out and always, you know, be ready to improvise multiple pathways to a piece of information. Right. Um, number five, develop fantastic locations. Now this is a this, this is a bit of a challenge because you know depending on the style of game that you're playing, uh. You know, a CD dive bar is not always the best location, or a hotel lobby, or a library, or something like that. For for those of us who play Call of Cthulhu, the exciting locations are usually not where most of the story is taking place. Right. Well, I mean, even in in fantasy role playing, you know, you have town and. You know, the blacksmiths. Mm-hmm. Not everything is going to be fantastic, but there are going to be things that are, you know, above and beyond the pale, right? Right. M- maybe a secret lair in an abandoned oil rig. Mm-hmm. Right? Or an underground laboratory in Edo Piri, Japan. <laughs> right. Right. Something like that. You know that that always helps to have uh, the set piece that you, well, know, you go through and you get the information, you get the clues, and it leads you to a fantastic location. Right. Fantastic doesn't have to be, um, you know, the spire of the wizard, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that doesn't. Have, fantastic just has to be a location that is out of the ordinary for the setting that is it that it is part of right mm-hmm. so like the oil rig well there's tons of oil rigs there's probably going to be tons more because trump is going to like fucking open up everything to to oil drilling mm-hmm. so it, but having a secret villainous lair in an oil rig is pretty cool 
Right. right? Same thing with Mount Rushmore. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, it's 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 there. It's semi-mundane. Mount Rushmore is kind of um, a fantastic location to begin with, just mm -hmm. for the engineering. But right. it, it doesn't necessarily have to be like you know, you know, a, a mysterious cave with a pool and a dragon. Mm -hmm. You know, it just has to be at a place enough for the setting you're in. It's probably harder to do a fantastic location in a fantasy setting because it's kind of been done. Right. The fantastic location <laughs> is is kind of like the thing. Everything is fantastic. Yeah, I mean just fire of the world. Yes, I look at it every day when I go outside. <laughs> just listen to D Ronnie James Dio lyrics. Right. <laughs> Get fantastic locations for fantasy. But I think also the the fantastic location can be the, the set piece for combat encounters. Yeah, of course. Uh, like massive Nihilith Tep, you, well, you don't want uh, you don't want to waste your fantastic locations on right. just like passing through. Right. <laughs> but I mean, you did the train to Siberia, where the entire that entire part of the adventure took place on a train. Right. So when there was combat, the combat actually you know, went out onto the top of the train. So, you know, what, what isn't fantastic about a fist fight on top of a moving train in the middle of Siberia? That's true. During winter. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that sort of thing or, or, you know, um, in icons, we had the, the battle uh, with Eschaton, just on a random city block. It just happened to be the monorail went over and the battle caused that mundane location to turn into a fantastic location. Yeah. Um, just because, I mean, they say here that, you know, um, building evocative locations isn't easily improvised. As such, it's worth spending time writing out a handful of fantastic locations. Um, you know, and the ones that they've given here are definitely, like, fantasy locations that are painted on vans. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the sun spire, the blazing beam of light shining to the heavens, the mo molten rock, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. crying out loud. But it doesn't only have to be that. It just has to be something that takes, that given the setting is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, and it's. I think it's easier to do that outside of fantasy. To be oh, yeah. honest with you. Yeah, especially where there's a there's a component of realism. Right. You know, I think it's it's interesting. You know, to for like Call of Cthulhu, we're going to keep using that as an example because not only are we playing it now, we play uh, a lot of it. We play a lot of it. Uh, to have something like. You're in a dingy library or an old house or, you know, a, you know, gambling parlor in uh, feudal Japan. And then you find your way through a set of clues and it opens up and it's just this thing that, as you say, is incongruous. It's not supposed to be there. You know, a Mayan ziggurat, you know, in the middle of downtown Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not supposed to be there. Well, that's pretty neat. 
and and yeah that's you develop fantastic locations by not only having locations that are evocative of the theme of the game but just kind of make the players go wow this is weird now the the point of the lazy way of doing this mm-hmm. <laughs> uh because we got to stick with the theme is that instead of um you know huge pages long descriptions of these places you are kind of like in fate you are taking uh, the the essence of said location mm-hmm. and you are giving it aspects you are just giving it three things that kind of describe it mm-hmm. So that people, your players, paint it picture in their minds of what they're seeing. Right. It's big. It's old. It's full of cobwebs. Right. Exactly. So you don't have. So your the key is of all of this is just having your prep time um, reduced. Mm-hmm. So in, instead of you know going through the lyrics of the of the Ronnie James Dio song and describing the Tower of the Wizard. Right. You it, know, you go, it's this huge iridescent tower um, with spires that climb the sky. There's a uh, long winding path up a um, up the side of a mountain to get to it. Mm-hmm. But that kind of thing. So you, you have, just from what I did, you kind of get a picture in your mind of what it's going to be. Right. Right. Also, that's all all you need. Right. Yeah, you just need something brief. And and the player's imaginations or even um, the audience's imagination will kind of take over and create this space inside their own head. And their imaginary casting of their characters will occupy that space. Yes. Um, There's also something interesting, I believe, that was in this chapter about... uh, you know, to coincide with the lazy way is looking at your uh, the time you're playing and about how many things you can get done. You know, how many how many rooms can you get through? And this is game mastering advice that also falls into uh, ICRPG in 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 the section of the book called room design, where you know it's like we're going to play two hours, so in putting together these locations, we're only going to see three of them tonight right. in our two hours. Right. So why why am I on room thirty seven? You know, when we're only going to see room number three, you can do right. three rooms or three little areas in an in a night easy, and you can prep that in you know a couple of hours, if that, if that. You know, if you're on a roll, you can have it done in an hour. But, you know, less is more, as you said. Don't don't plot out the entire dungeon. Plot out what you think the dungeon is going to entail today. Um, which brings us to back around to number three and number four. Number six on the list is outline important NBC, NPCs. Right, and, and we kind of touched upon this. Right. Um, but it's the same with your fantastic locations. You don't need to have like an entire dossier on your NPCs. Um, really, you know, the ones that are going to matter, you're going to have more information on. Mm-hmm. But 
um, you don't need a whole hell of a lot. I mean, because honestly, how long are they going to be actually interacting with these characters? Right. Not very long. Yeah. Unless, unless for some reason the encounter with that NPC becomes very entertaining, uh, and then you improv to have that NPC show up later to take the place of another NPC. Right. But the, the greatest advice about this, and it's something that I have to, is to have a list of names. Yes. At, at the ready. I have a, a website that's up, and I should just write down the names from the website. Yeah. Um, that gives me random character names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys nail me on that shit all the fucking time. Uh, because, yeah, I don't always write down names of NPCs, especially NPCs that are just going to be there for that encounter to disseminate this part of the information. You guys always ask me, what's this character's name? <laughs> and, or, you know, what's what's this bar we're in called? Right. (laughs) It's like, why? You're not coming back here. (laughs) Uh, I believe it's all about immersion. Right. We were playing the eyes of set for ICRPG. And I said, the desert. And Nick was like, what's the name of the desert? Yeah. And I was like the, the moron desert. Right. The Wacky Desert. That's right, the Wacky Desert. The Wacky <laughs> Desert. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, when I go through and I set up for a session, I do the main NPC encounters, I do give those characters names, write those names in my notes, who they are and what they do. Right. Um, and especially if it's a recurring NPC. You know, I may give them a sheet, but more often than not, an, a generic NPC, they get a name. I have an idea in my head of how this person is, and go for and just write down their name. Oh, for yeah. me, they only get a sheet if you're going to fight them. Oh, really? Yeah. If I think you're going to fight them, then they get a sheet. Other than that, what do what do I care? Um, am I rolling? their chances to do anything am i right. running skills for them no do i care how many hit points they have no if i mean if they need to cast a spell they're an npc they can have the spell right well that's that's <laughs> one of the other things that i do is if I, it's an I, npc that gets drawn into a fight or drawn into even like a social combat where you're trying to like fast talk them or or persuade them in any way their skills are always average they always have yeah. the opposing skill, and it's always the mean. Right. And unless it's like their specialty, right? Right. You know, if you're talking to like a master con artist, right, they're going to have like it's going to be a little harder to to convince them to do stuff, right? Something like you know, that. Bullshit them than it would be for like you know the the fucking livery guy, right? But luckily, most modern systems these days. Instead of having opposed roles, you can just up the difficulty. You well, know, so and, if you well, have an NPC who is a master con artist and somebody tries to fast talk him, say, okay, uh, that role is going to be hard. Or right. make well, that, and that's how Call of Cthulhu is actually set up. 
Mm -hmm. um, so if their skill is 50% or lower, it's just average. Right. If it's uh, between the 51 and I think 90, it's hard. And if it's above 90, it's extreme. And that's what you're opposed. It's not really an opposed check. It's a difficulty against their skill. Mm -hmm. So do I really need to have a skill percentage? No, I just need to know whether they are um, average, good, or really good. Right. Right. And that's it. So, and and something like a D twenty system, you say, okay, give me, you know, that social role. Um, it's a DC seventeen. So it's like, okay, if you beat a seventeen, you succeed. Period. Uh, you know, other games like ICRPG uh, is it's already made for you. Well, yeah, it's. The DC's there, and you can go hard, which is plus three, or easy, which is minus three off of that DC. So you say hard, and it's you know, and you're on a twelve. You got to make a fifteen. Um, icons, same way. You know, you can just say, okay, well, you need to make a a massive success. Right. If you want to talk about it, if you're trying to talk this guy out of his family heirloom watch, you're going to need a massive success. You're going to need two massive successes. Right. Something yeah, like so I, I don't, I used to sweat NPCs a lot and I don't anymore and I haven't in a while. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, if it's a rando, it's a name. <laughs> right. That's all, that's all you need is a name. And, and if it's a, um, an important one, the good advice that they do get is to uh, take a, a personality from pop culture. Mm -hmm. that that you know you're familiar with and tweak it a little bit like with the gender um mm -hmm. something like that right so that, but that you end up having like um you know just something to base their personality off of which is really really good advice mm -hmm. and which is something that you've actually used several times i do it all the time i am doing it all the time because i suck at being creative so i'm just right. rip rip off and and wesley wesley is known for doing this except that he picks uh rather uh obscure performances to ape in in his npcs right uh sleazy bastard number three right sleazy bastard number three yeah. Oh, this time it's played by Joey Pantalone. Right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, NPCs, write down the name, get an idea in your head as to how that character behaves. Don't necessarily try to bring this character to life. You know, don't be George Lucas. And, you know, guy in the background of the bar has a name and a full, complete 30-year backstory. You don't need that. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Like the, 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 the most solid piece of advice here is if they are important, think of a think of a character and use that as your basis mm -hmm. for their personality. Right. Because I you know, sometimes I don't think that enough emphasis is put on the fact that GMs 
have to role play a lot more than the character the players do. Yeah, you're role playing like four or five characters. Right. Um, your player, each of your players is playing one character, and on a world of seven billion people, you're playing the other six billion nine hundred million, etc. People right. in the world. <laughs> yes. You know, so you know that's something that's something that the GM really also has to think about. Is like, look, you know, don't always don't make your characters all extreme personalities. A majority of the people on this planet are just dull. Right. <laughs> now we get into the part where it, it kind of reveals itself as this book is for fantasy right. role playing uh, because it's choosing relevant monsters. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess you can change that to be choosing choose relevant opponents. Right. Or encounters encounters but uh really um it's it more or less it's saying don't sweat the uh the encounter tables right uh, you know the uh the math for uh, balancing encounters um eyeball it mm -hmm. <laughs> but but make it in make it intelligent vis-a-vis -vis the ecology of of your campaign Right, right. You don't want to run into a frost giant in the middle of the desert. Right. Um, um, I semi agree with that. I, for especially for D and D, I think that encounters should be balanced. Right. Um, you know, easy, less easy, average, difficult. Um, that way, because. Um, you know, no one wants to have their party killed because they're third level and they're fighting, you know, a lich. Right. You know, you, there has to be some balance, but it, it does have to make sense. Mm -hmm. I, I would say I would say that an, an encounter is probably the one thing to spend time on. If you do nothing else to prep for your game, it's, you know, work on the encounter. Yeah. Um, I don't think you have to like um, get completely um, mathematical with it. Yeah, like hung up on it. But I think there are some, you know, just in terms of how heavy does your party hit? Mm -hmm. How many attacks do they get? Mm -hmm. You know, versus, you know, uh, how many hit points and how many things to hit are there? Right, you know, because you know it, it averages out that if you have more attacks than your opponent does, you're going to come out on top, just just from attrition. Right, like four on one. Right, four is going to get is going to do it. <laughs> right, four has more attacks, but you know if you have a um, you know instead of one really powerful monster that is a challenge to the party, which they probably will just eat through. Because it's only one monster, mm -hmm. you know, maybe two less powerful monsters. Because then you have more attacks, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, or, or even some type of environmental challenge in the room. You know, yeah, you know, it's only one monster, but you know, it's it automatically succeeds on these jump checks to get between these platforms, whereas the players may not. 
Funny how you were thinking of the platforms. I was thinking of those platforms as well. I know. I love that room. <laughs> White Plume Mountain. White Plume Mountain. That's my favorite room. <laughs> and I was over the moon when Black Magic Craft actually constructed a model of it for the tabletop. White Plume Mountain. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so you have that kind of encounter. Uh, me, personally, I do like to, depending on where you are in the chapter... Uh, spend a little bit more time designing an encounter because I want there to be at least one encounter villain uh, or, or uh, monster that just completely outclasses the player characters. Uh, that way, there has there has to be an alternative. We can't just fight this thing head on. Well, and that that is the other thing is you don't have to fight everything. Mm -hmm. um, if Call of Cthulhu has taught me anything, is the uh, valor of retreat. You can get GTFO. Yes, no, not if you're playing in in uh, feudal Japan and you ha are an honorable person. But other than that, you can GTFO. Right. Right. Well, I mean, if you're playing in feudal Japan, you know, even the most embarrassing death. In combat is still an honorable death, right? You know, drowning, drowning uh, on dry land would have been an embarrassing death, but you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, my guy's an honorable guy; he's going to keep trying to fight, regardless. So it's like, okay, well, you know, sure, my round is you know just making con rolls, but you know, there's that part of the aspect of. Yeah, mechanically, my action this round is to make a con roll. But in terms of narration, he is, you know, he's got his Naginata dug into the dirt and he's, you know, his muscles are taut. And he's, you know, he's looking that guy square in the eye like, give me a second, I'll cut your head off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, just thinking about your encounters in terms of, of the narrative that they are, you know, that you are engaged in an interactive type of fiction. Right, especially in combat. And they, he actually gets a little bit into this later on mm -hmm. um, about, about combat. Combat is the focus of nine-tenths of these games. Mm -hmm. Even if they say it's not Call mm -hmm. of Cthulhu, it kind of is. Right. <laughs> because they have a whole fucking long chapter dedicated to combat. Right. It's, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you are going to survive said combat, but it is an important part of the game, or it wouldn't be there. Because there are games where there are, is no combat. Right. You have you might have two or three sessions where there is no combat, but any, any RPG designer spends an inordinate amount of time on combat. And Combat can be the most boring part of playing a game. It's mm -hmm. strange because you would think that it would be the most exciting part. Mm -hmm. um, but because of it's the dice rolling and the minutiae, it can get boring. So it is, it's important to be able to remember that combat is an encounter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even just... 
a simple description. You don't have to describe rivulets of blood flicking out from, you know, the wound in your, the sucking wound in your chest. But just like a his sword, you duck under his sword and, you know, cut mm -hmm. through, you know, his armor. Right, right. That there is, there is a narrative component to combat yeah. as well. Not every role has to be epic, but, you know, it does have to be somewhat narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe one of the suggestions that he makes in the book is to have the players narrate the killing blow. Yeah, which is, we do that a lot. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily every time, but we, we, we tend to do that a lot. Mm -hmm. Just to make it, it makes it more exciting um, to, to narrate. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I'm probably the worst at this or for this, but uh, engaging in spectacularly complex actions uh you know to to you know kind of increase the excitement right you're still rolling your die the way right you you're still your rolling die. you're still rolling to hit the guy but you know it's like I, i'd spring off the wall and twirl my weapon in the air and strike at him you know and and that leads to a lot of times to inadvertent comedy because you know you describe this fantastic attack and fail. Kerplunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after the combat, mm -hmm. there are the rewards of the fruits of your labor. That's right. That's right. Because you know, particularly in fantasy, shooting loot is the way to go. Well, and you can get over the top. With you know, you can really escalate. Uh, what do they call it? Power creep. Mm -hmm. You can escalate the capabilities of uh, characters very exponentially by giving them um, inappropriate magic items. Mm -hmm. You can. Um, I've I've done that in the past myself. Uh, one thing I particularly enjoy is the fantasy trope of the signature weapon. Yes. Um, I, I love that trope. And, you know, and really, if a player receives a, their signature weapon at in a dramatically appropriate time, you know, you really don't have to worry about, you know, that plus three ring of stealth or whatever later on down the road. It's like, shit, man, I got a fucking energy bow. Who needs that crap? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know, then you can just like spend the time for treasure. You, know, you find 50 copper pieces and a diamond ring. Well, I mean, there has to be some. Well, yeah. Some some GMs, I'm not going to name any Kessler names, um, are very stingy with the loot. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and some are overly generous. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think I learned my lesson when I gave y'all magic items from Master Neurolethotep. That like made made it a lot less of a of a uh, slaughterhouse than it was intended to be. Well, I think you also I think part of the mistake that you made was making us choose our favorite item on our person and then enchanting those items. 
you know, because most everybody was almost everybody picked a weapon, right? Um, with the exception of of James, who picked in uh, his hat, of course, and he was looking for something that would give him a, a stealth advantage, right? And you know, I picked armor because I needed armor. <laughs> that you did. Because, you know, I was I was tanking all the damage. And so, yeah, it was like, it, it depends. If you work with your players in, in determining, you know, what their theme of their character is, and that goes back to, you know, reviewing the characters, uh, you can usually find ways to give them certain magic items that will get them where they want. Right. Um, you know, sure. You know, an, an enchanted set of brass knuckles. Fine. Don't make it a plus five enchanted brass knuckles that can freeze a person on a hard success. brass knuckles. Right. Something of that nature. You know, build it up. It's like, okay, you know, you get a plus one brass knuckles for right now. Those are all... Um, does- Developed using the Stormbringer mm-hmm. rules for enchanted items. Now, those right. were those were like all legit things. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. It just they they weren't really appropriate to the setting because they weren't appropriate to the setting. Well, except but, for magic coat, <laughs> shield and magic, <laughs> uh, spear and magic helmet. <laughs> Magic helmet. Who needs a magic helmet? I'll take the spear. Or, or the, you know, the Excalibur dilemma. You know, do you take the sword, or do you take the sheath? Well, I need the sword. Okay, and then you find out later. Well, if you had the sheath, he wouldn't have been able to cut you like that. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I guess in, in, in coming up with rewards, you know, that's something you kind of want to, like, work with the players. because. But on occasion, it's nice to get, like, random shit. Yeah. Um, sometimes random shit isn't very useful. Right. So there has to be a balance. Right. Um, and, and the examples that they're giving in this book, um, it's kind of like the end... Um, the end game mm-hmm. stuff, right? That you that you know you're getting, which I, I don't necessarily think that you know you're you're saving the world to get the super special hammer or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think that you know a butt ton of gold <laughs> at the end right. is well worth it because let's face it. You get the hammer at the end, and what good does that do you? The adventure's over. Right. But you get the hammer at the end, and, well, you know... I guess we continue on after that. Right. You'll have a character that says, I want to play again because I want to use this hammer. I want to use the hammer. (laughs) Or or, or something like that. that. But that's why I try to, like, give the hammer halfway through. You know, and and kind of and try to balance it out. I mean, you guys had some absurd magic items, but you know, it's like, hey, that's fine. Just up the difficulty of the encounter. 
You know, it's not just well, staff wasn't absurd. Right. Your staff wasn't absurd, but uh I think uh well no, none of it was really absurd. No, it was like level appropriate. Mm -hmm. Really, I just needed something that let me um hit hit things that needed um magic to hit. Right. And that's another good good example of appropriate magic items or appropriate loot is you know yeah you can you can wail on these things all day long with your bare hands but you know you're not doing any damage and but that's the way the narrative is going that's the campaign that's the that's the secrets and clues that have been laid out so you know the player needs to kind of balance the playing field a little bit right the only acceptable game where you where you can pull that off is Call of Cthulhu because nothing can be hit <laughs> right by non-enchanted items. Mm -hmm. And enchanted items are that do exist are extremely rare. They're not laying around in them. Well, I mean, they could be feasibly laying around in a musty cupboard in somebody's basement, just or like in a, or in a bookstore, right? You know, blasphemous tomes are you know available at every garage sale, apparently. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the that enchanted dagger, you know, that's kept in some rich collector guy's safe, right? But that's how that works, and that's usually yeah, usually the loot is the end of the session or the end of the encounter, right? Yeah, you want to you want to make it appropriate, but you want it to be satisfying. You know, we climbed all the way up this mountain, fought through, you know, 20, 30 rooms in this dungeon. And, you know, what do we got at the end? We got a, a dead wizard and 50 copper. You know, unless you're one of those dungeon masters who's really good and your players are really good about uh, playing their alignments or, or playing their personalities. And they're really doing this for the good of the people which you have players like that okay but metagame wise right um especially in a game that is designed to um have some sort of attrition you know in inverse attrition like dungeons and dragons where you are getting levels you're becoming more powerful as as you proceed you want to be able to become more powerful mm -hmm. you you want you want those experience points you want those magic items you know you you want that stuff mm -hmm. so you can go on to greater challenges than orcs or gods. Right. Speaking right. of levels, uh, that's one of the rewards that Shay suggests is, you know, maybe instead of giving them that powerful magic item, give them a level. Yes. I actually like the idea of, um, of, le of uh, milestone leveling. Mm -hmm. um, it is a lot less to keep track of. Right. And, you know, that's what people want is that level. Right. And it satisfies. And you don't have to grind for it. Right. You don't have to grind for it because there are some games, particularly some of the older RPGs, where the space between levels is a grind. I'm looking at you, Gamma World. <laughs> yes. Um, well, original... Or AD and D mm -hmm. was a was a grind. Um, Warhammer Fantasy. Oh, jeez. 
So yeah, I I like mild, but you have to you have to make it challenging. Mm-hmm. It can't just be okay. You got through the level, so now you're all level four. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have successful um, encounters. But the good thing is that it's not just fighting monsters that's getting you these levels. Mm-hmm. You know, it's social encounters, right? Right. It's social um, encounters. It's, it's, it's dealing with environmental obstacles. Right. Environment. So you're growing not just by combat, but, you know, by the three main pillars of fantasy role playing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's action adventure and, you know, a lot of people kind of forget the adventure part of it where, you know, you are crossing the chasm of the deathless, you know, on a rickety bridge. That's a fantastic location. Yes. And that's also an exciting uh, encounter. You know, it's like, okay, the bridge is creaking and you get, three quarters of the way across or whatever. It's snapping. Oh, make dexterity checks. <laughs> and, and you know, that one person who fails, who ends up clinging to the bridge for dear life right. <laughs> over the bottomless chasm, you know, players remember that shit when, mm-hmm. it com- when it comes to the end of the chapter. They're like, you know, and, and you give out that, that reward of you get, you guys gain a level. All of you gain a level. And people go, yeah. Ooh, I earned that shit. Yeah. And, and that's that's a satisfying resolution. And I, I think, yeah, the milestone leveling really does kind of uh, give kind of a satisfaction. So now that you've read The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, mm-hmm. um, do you think you will be incorporating more of these techniques into your, your preparation? Um. Yeah, I think I might take some of that advice to help kind of streamline it. Um, a lot of the stuff I was already doing just from, you know, watching other GM prep videos and and advice from, you know, uh, Runehammer, Drunkens and Dragons. For me, that's a lot of great solid advice right there. And, you know, his his is quick, easy, and simple. Um, and and his his. It was kind of interesting because I, I enjoy the ICRPG game and I was reading this and I was, you know, just a lot of this is the stuff that that they were talking about on that channel as well, where if you, you don't have time, but if you want to run a successful game for a couple hours, you don't need to put three weeks in of preparation into one game, you know, two hours. Tops. Yeah, it it's it's not um, a, a lot of a. Uh, it's not um, groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not. It's not like surprising any of this. Um, it's stuff that I do a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, because of the time suck of just living life mm-hmm. and wanting to create, you know, memorable games. Right now, um, sometimes it's it's harder to prep a prepared adventure than it is to come up with something on your own. Yeah, uh, although, although I prefer the latter. Well, because prepared adventures, you have to do a lot of reading. You have to, you know, do a lot of juggling and organizing. Whereas 
when you come up with something on your own, you have a lot more freedom to improvise. Mm -hmm. You have a lot more freedom to improvise and, you know, it's all in your head anyway. You're just kind of making it slightly organized. Right. Um, like my, my notes for icons, uh, following the example in the book, uh, single page, but I don't write paragraphs. I bullet point. So it's like, right. you know, maybe a quick description of what's going on. And then, you know, a you know, point, 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 you know, of what I intend on occurring during the session. Right. I, I think I, I belong to a lot of uh, Facebook groups for different games. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a lot of talk about prep and how much um, time and effort people put into it. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and I'm kind of like, I don't do a quarter of that. Right. <laughs> I don't have like folders of maps and that I've come up with or, you know, backstories for like kingdoms and everything because I just don't have time for it. Right. Exactly. Um, and another thing is, is that we have an advantage. Uh, you know, a lot of times playing around a table, you know, people tend to want like a visual aid, whether it's a, a map or, um, you know, for, for some people are really into minis and terrain and things right. like that. And that is a lot of, especially if you're one of those GMs that likes building your own terrain. Oh my God. Uh, that is, that's a lot of prep time right there. So, you know, the big thing is modular reusable stuff, you know, a couple right. of tiles, some scatter, you know, just to get the, the in intimidation of it. And there we go. That's, that's the, mo right. the most I ever do. I, I don't play with minis. I never have. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I play in this D20 modern group that we use a, you know, a map and everything when we do combat. Right. First time I ever did that. Um, well, you know me, I will write, put a quick sketch of a room on a index card. Yep. On the screen and go, that's where you are. Right. <laughs> Right. You know, just just so everybody kind of has an idea. But, you know, once you're all on like vaguely the same page, mm -hmm. you know, there you go. Right. Right. And are, and, the, are the boxes within one move so I can hide behind them? Yeah. Right. Sure. They totally are. Or, you know, I'm going to climb up the boxes. Right. And that's that's the one advantage of a good description of a room or at least a or or allowing the players to kind of like you're in a warehouse all right well you know you didn't say it was an empty warehouse so there's obviously boxes and shelves in here right exactly you know and, so, and you know it'll let the players assume the furnishings of the room yeah there you go that's half your work done for you there right and and are, are there are there boxes near me make a luck roll right right are there boxes yeah it's a warehouse there's boxes are they near you well, make a luck roll. Theater of the mind, right? Right. Yes, there's a stack of boxes. Okay, I'm going to climb up the boxes. Okay, give me a climb check. That's your turn. Well, 
deal with what's on top, what you do on top of the boxes your next turn. Right, exactly. And you keep it going. You know, it, it, the one thing, the word, the, but you do have to learn to improvise because, you know, if you play with me, you're going to end up with, I backflip off the top of the boxes and kick one of them into the, the crowd of thugs. <laughs> or I make shoot. A, make a jump roll, make a, make your attack roll. Right. Right. Or, or, uh, what was it? Oh, I shoot an arrow into the track that the robots run on. That was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. And, yeah, and that that in in my mind also helps you know get the players involved. It's like, whoa, you know, it's not just I swing my sword and try to hit him. It's like, no, use the environment, use the room itself. You know, use use that descriptive and narrative uh, style to come up with something that's just because at the end of the day, you know, you want to leave the session with people saying, wow, that was really cool. You know, whether whether it's just the GM or it's the whole experience or whatever the cause of it is, is that you are there to have a good time doing ridiculous shit that you do not do in real life. Yeah. Goddamn right. And that is about it for this episode. Yeah. Uh, so check us out next time. And when, when we answer the question, can Fist of the North Star be used as a uh, setting for Gamma World? Mm. Keep 30 luck points. Indeed. Indeed.